It's time for Money for Lunch, where we feed your brain and your business with supersized portions of business and financial news. Now your host, Bert Martinez. All right. Welcome back. I am excited. Um, my guest today, Mark McLean. Mark McLean is the CEO and founder of SailPoint and the Forbes book author of Joy and Success at Work, Building Relationships, I'm sorry, Building Organizations That Don't Suck the Life Out of People. I like that. Joy and Success at Work, Building Organizations That Don't Suck the Life Out of People. Uh, and I think that's so important because uh, I'll, I think uh, there's a study out there that says most people uh, really don't like their job. Um, I'm going to pop the book up here. It's available at Amazon or wherever you buy your favorite books. I'll put a link in the show notes in case you want to grab the book. But uh, I'm excited to have Mark McLean here on the show. Mark, welcome. Hi, Bert. Thanks so much for having me on the show. It's a real pleasure. You bet. You bet. All right. So real quick, tell us a little bit about SailPoint. What is it that SailPoint does? So we're uh, a he knows a lot about uh, security. Um and uh, Let's try that again. I'm sorry. I, I was gone. I didn't know if I said something wrong or what happened there. Well, you know, I'm not very tech savvy. Apparently, I pressed the wrong button. So. My hands are not on the wheel. It wasn't me. Um, so you were telling uh, us about SailPoint. Sorry about that. Yes. Well, well, I'm sure they can edit that in, right? Okay. Yeah. So uh, SailPoint is a, an enterprise a SaaS software company that sells to large organizations, a big financial institutions, banks, government entities, and we're in the realm of security, particularly something called identity management. Just think of it as the, the challenge you face as a human consumer person, trying to keep track of all these accounts and passwords you use to get onto the things you care about. Um, well, in a corporate or business setting, right, organizations with, you know, giant companies with 10, 50, 100,000 people, they have thousands of these business applications and keeping track of all of those accounts and passwords very challenging, right? And so our, our product helps those organizations keep track of who has access to what. It's a, it's a way to ensure productivity. People are getting access to what they need to do their job. It promotes security. They can ensure that only the right people have access to the right data. So it's not getting you know breached or compromised. So we're in that realm of security, which is a pretty hot topic in the world today. And, and businesses kind of protecting their data and ensuring that only the right people have access to it. Yeah, that... that uh... That has become a, you know, just a huge topic, right? I mean, just, it, it seems like at least once or twice a month, somebody is announcing that they got hacked, right? That their information got hacked. And, and you know, it's happened to, interestingly enough, it happened most uh, common to these massive big corporations, Sony and Citibank and all these big companies. Absolutely. But you know what's changing in this world, Bert, and it's shocking to us that because of the technology and because there's a lot of these hackers around the world, it's come way more down market. I mean, companies with a few thousand employees can find themselves getting targeted now. And the other thing that, that products like ours help companies with, that's called an outsider or attack, right, from the outside. But there's also this concept of insider threat. Something that's a little less, le less well known is you can have an employee who either just gets mad and does something with their access they're not supposed to, or like this is unsadly more common too. They'll be targeted by like a nation state or the or the 
organized crime, and they'll kind of incent an employee to use their access to give them data and information. So this idea of really ensuring the right people have access to the information and then that they're using it properly, these are pretty big hot topics for businesses kind of of any significant size up to the giant corporations in the world. And so, yeah, we're in a, we're in a good market. It's growing fast. The business is doing well. So yeah, we're, we're gonna, we're gonna have a very good year we think. And it's, and it's been a great time for us. Even COVID, believe it or not, has helped with some of that. <laughs> well, it's good to know that. <laughs> it's good to know that, uh, uh, that uh, not everybody is suffering because of COVID. I'm glad you guys are doing well. All right, so I got to ask you this, Mark. Uh, the book, Joy and Success at Work, Building Organizations That Don't Suck the Life Out of People. Uh, why write this book? Well, you know, I've had the good fortune to be an entrepreneur twice. We built a company. I, I worked in corporate for about 15 years, big companies, IBM, Hewlett Packard, well-known tech names. Then uh, and a startup here in Austin for about five years. And I saw kind of the smaller business this early stage company thing. And I thought, wow, that'd be fun. And turns out I had some great colleagues and we got together and started one business. It ran for about five years. And then a couple of us, after we sold that business, started this one. And, and you know, when you, when you think about, uh, Bert, so many people, we all know these stats, you know, the great majority of people in the workforce are not happy, sadly, right? They're disengaged. They don't like their boss. They aren't motivated by their work. And so in some ways, you know, that's an organization that sucks, right? And so I felt like since I've been more and more asked by younger entrepreneurs and other people, well, how, how did you guys do what you did? Because we, we've been fortunate to build not only a successful set of companies now. Um, SailPoint went public a few years ago. It's a, it's a really good, successful business story, but it's also a story of, of really happy employees, right? We have very high ratings on Glassdoor and all that kind of stuff. And so people are like intrigued by that. How did you have kind of quote joy and success? Right? How did you manage to pull both of these off? And I think there really are some, some well understood principles that can help people ensure that they're creating an environment that people not only feel like they're accomplishing things and getting work done and achieving things, but they're also actually enjoying what they do at work with colleagues they enjoy working with, with a boss who appreciates them. And I think you can put some things in place uh, that help help drive toward those kinds of objectives. And that's really what the book is all about. All right. So from the time that you got this idea of writing the book until the time that you started writing the book, how long of a lag time? How long were you thinking about before you pulled the trigger? You know what? That's a really good question. Not that long. I, I, I was kind of approached. Um, um, Forbes, uh, we've, we've had the good fortune to write some columns for the Forbes website. And they approached us and said, hey, we like some of your columns. Would you ever think about writing a book? My first reaction was, I don't have time to write a book. I'm busy running a company. That's a great idea for when I'm not running a company someday. And so I, I kind of just said, well, I don't think that's realistic. And they came back and said, hey, look, we have a process. We think we can help you get through that. And so we explored it and actually kind of decided to do it in a pretty short period of time, measured in a few months. And then the process of creating the book was not that many months as well. So I think in my case, Bert, I was fortunate I had 35 years in the business world to just draw on tons of experience and what had worked and not worked. Some of what I talk about in the book is what didn't work. Um, and then just kind of coalescing that into a series of, of, of stories and, and anecdotes. It wasn't as painful as it might sound, I guess. Yeah. Probably the right yeah. Thing. 
That's funny. You know, you reminded me of Mark Cuban. I think somebody asked Mark, hey, when are you going to write a book? He says, I'm too busy to write a book. I'll write it, you know, when I'm retired or something. Right. Like that. Right. So, uh, all right. So let me ask you this. What are some poor management practices that suck the life out of employees? Oh, there's there's just boy, there's a lot to start with here, Bert. I, I think the probably the number one that sucks the life out of employees is not feeling appreciated. I, I think we're all at our core from the time we're little kids and we want to be patted on the head and told we did well by our parents or by our teachers. We sort of need affirmation and appreciation and some of those good psychological buzzwords. I am not a psychologist. I don't even play one on TV. But I think the idea that there's a um, there's there's a need for people to feel appreciated and to feel like what they're doing is noticed. And, it, you know, sometimes in business management and organizations will mistake that, OK, people just need to be paid. Right. Or they need to be given money bonuses. It's like if people don't feel good about how they're appreciated and what they're doing, you can throw some amount of money at them to keep them. But ultimately, most people won't stick around forever for that. Some people will if they're truly mercenary, I guess. But for the most part, people people want to feel appreciated. And, and the studies are very clear that your first line manager has the most impact on how you perceive that. So, so getting managers to think about how they interact with their employees is probably a big, big part of this. And, and that really starts with just appreciating people, being clear what you ask them to do, and, and then helping them achieve it as a, almost more of a coach, right? Managers, I think, when they're doing their jobs well, they serve as a coach. They're helping that person achieve the objective, right? right. And then everybody wins. Yeah. Matter of fact, it's interesting you, you, you say that, uh, you mentioned that coach-manager uh, analogy there because I, uh, I was interviewing somebody from a different company and they said, we don't have managers. We got rid of managers. They're all coaches now. No, oh, that's funny. Yeah, no, I, I think there's a, you know, you can beat the sports metaphors to death in business and we often do. Um, uh, but I think there's a lot of truth in that part of the metaphor, right? That that a, that a, co a good coach, they're also bad coaches, right? Yes. Um, my son happens to be a high school football coach, which is sort of next to religion here in Texas, right? Yes. And, uh, He's he's very much motivating the kids to get their best out of them, right? He wants right. them to do their best, and good managers and coaches, like you said, Bert, they're looking to pull the best out of people. Um, and some of that has to do with helping those people understand what their strengths are. Another big practice I believe in, it's, it's from a book in, in Gallup, and there's a book called Strengths Finders. I think this idea that the good leadership and management of people is often understanding what they're good at and helping them develop that even further. Sometimes if you look back through a lot of the course of uh, performance reviews, many of us lived through the joy of a performance review uh, when we were younger that wasn't good because sometimes the manager would say, okay, here's five things you're doing well. Here's two things you're not doing well. And let's spend the whole time figuring out how to fix those things you don't do well. Right. And as, and I think a lot of times we're far better off understanding what our folks are good at. Sure, if they've got some big glaring weaknesses, let's try to shore those up a little. But a lot of it is, hey, you've got some real gifting or ability or natural talent here. How do we develop that to be even better? Because I think as we, as we continue on in our understanding of the world of work, we've mostly figured out that a lot of what really gets done gets done in teams, right? Well, again, let's let's go back to sports. Uh, we'll do the probably a lot of that. You know, I believe that in many ways, teams work best when people understand their roles and can do their part and let the other players on the team do their part. And often that's not the same role. In some ways, to use a metaphor, it's more like American football. 
than it is some other sports because there's more specialization in the positions in some ways. And, you know, you try to take a receiver and turn them into a lineman or vice versa. It doesn't go well. Right. So how do we help people know what they're good at, encourage that and then look for other team members who can bring strengths to that teammates area of weakness? So overall, you get a stronger team. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and something that you said uh, that sounds very simple, mm-hmm. which is being appreciated. Uh-huh. And and how you said, hey, it's the you know that frontline manager's responsibility to make his team, his department feel appreciated. And, and so, two things I got from that is, you know, one, we hear time and time again that people don't quit companies; they quit, they quit that you know that the, the closest manager they're working with, right? They they quit the manager uh, or the supervisor, and then this idea of being appreciated, you know. I think that's the key to just about every relationship on the planet. I mean, when you look at a couple that's divorced, sooner or later, the word, I didn't feel appreciated, the phrase, I didn't feel appreciated, I didn't feel important, I didn't feel valued, those phrases pop up. All the time. Yep. All the time. And, Bert, I really appreciate what you said. Sometimes people, like, forget what they think they understand about relationships when they come to work. Like, well, work, I'm paying you. I can just order you what to do, and you're supposed to do it, right? It's like, no, in today's economy, maybe that worked in the, you know, indentured servant days where you were fortunate to have a job and you kept it for life. People are way too able to change if they want to now. So if they have a crappy boss or a bad work environment, they're just going to, as I like to say, vote with their feet, right? They're going to go somewhere else. And at some level, I think that's why it's so incumbent on management to make sure, managers, to make sure they're looking for opportunities. That old phrase, catch your people doing something right. I love that phrase, right? Like, hey, that was so great, that thing you did, or the way you handled that situation, or, you know, I was expecting this and you actually over-delivered against my expectations. That just motivates the heck out of people, right? And they feel like, wow, somebody noticed that I worked hard and did my best and all that. Um, you know, uh, another word that goes in here that sounds like a soft, fuzzy word is empathy, right? Like, do you understand how people feel when they busted their butt to try to get something done and and nobody even says thank you, right? That feels crappy. We've all experienced that. So when someone does say thank you or I appreciate that really great thing you did or how hard you worked, that's that's what often motivates people to come back and go at it again the next day, right? I mean, there's a great book, uh, Bert, when you and I are a little younger, that circulated pretty widely uh, at the time called Everything I Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. I don't know if you remember that book. But um, great book. And yeah. I tell people, so much of this stuff is not difficult to understand, just like what right. we tell kindergartners is not difficult to understand the concepts. Living it out all day, every day, it turns out to be the hard part, like, you know, not thinking more about yourself than the people around you. So you share, so you give credit to others, you take turns, you think all those things you learn at five years old, and then you get to be 45 years old and you've seemingly forgotten them in the workplace. You don't take turns. You're not nice to people. You don't say thank you. You cut in line, whatever the bad metaphors are. You know, I think some of this stuff is not that hard to think or understand, you just got to encourage people to keep doing it. And that's a lot of what senior leadership's job is to tell people, hey, this is the way we want to do it here. You, right. you kind of jumped on somebody and you shouldn't have jumped on them. I want you to correct them if they need correcting. We're not talking about being fuzzy, happy, give everybody a hug, even though they did a crappy job. No, we're not talking about that. But we're saying if they need correction, they need good coaching, give it to them. But make sure you're thanking them and appreciating them and telling them how well they're doing. And when you 
when you treat people like that, they're going to generally run through brick walls for you. I've found they just they're like, wow, I so feel appreciated here. I'm going to work hard to to do what I'm being asked to do. Yeah. Interestingly enough that you bring up empathy. Uh, I've started studying empathy this year quite a bit. Um, I interviewed Chris Voss, who is uh, at one point the uh, you've seen the book. uh, I don't know. uh, It's called Split the Difference. And here he is. He's the uh, hostage negotiator for the FBI. The, uh, yep. the, the only one, the only international uh, F, international FBI hostage negotiator. And, and, and his number one tool was empathy. He called it tactical empathy. And from a, from a, a view as a negotiator, he has to come to give up and in return get nothing right and worse than that you're going to go to jail not only are you not going to that you won't you have to go to jail now. and he yeah. says without him none of that happen no i mean the, the old oh sorry no yeah. the, the more you two guys the, the, the more people appreciate you the, the more that they feel connected with you as though you understand them and like you said, they will run through brick walls for that. No, that's a great point. And I, I've, uh, I've I've seen Chris interviewed on a podcast or seen or heard him in a podcast. Yeah, the old metaphor of negotiating. And again, we negotiate all day, every day with our spouses and our children and our employees. And the, and it's kind of a, do you have a win-win mindset or a win-lose mindset, right? If, if it's all a zero-sum game, that old phrase, um, you know, then if I win, you lose or vice versa. So I got to make sure I win as opposed to, hey, can we both win if we figure out a, a path where both of us can get some, some, if not most of what we want? And and I think that idea, again, at work is very pertinent, right? And how people feel appreciated and achieve joy is they feel like they're accomplishing things. They're being appreciated. They're working on a great team, right, to achieve those things. And, and again, it's it's the frustration is often that people are, are feeling beat down or criticized for what they don't do well and getting almost no positive reinforcement of what they do well. And I think that is just so demotivating for, for most folks. You know, I like to say, Bert, I, I mostly work in the in the professional realm, I suppose. Right. People are, you know, more educated college grad, if not, you know, associate's degrees, that kind of the high tech world is a lot of those kind of, of folks. And I don't think it's necessarily different in, in like a factory environment or anywhere. But I think in general, em- employees, people at work, um, they want to live between kind of two guardrails is how I think of it. You know, they, they want to live between give me enough clarity and understanding of what I'm supposed to do that I know kind of where we're trying to go. What's the objective? What are, what are we trying to accomplish in the business, my particular role in the business, whatever, or in the nonprofit, the church, whatever setting you're doing your thing in, Right. On the other side of it, though, and this is really what I think demotivates most people is micromanagement. We've all heard that term, right? Like if you're being told exactly what to do every second of the day, that's probably necessary if you have a a high school kid doing French fries at the fast food place. But in general, people, once they're adults and, and have some experience and they have intelligence, they want to be able to use that. And if you're kind of telling them exactly what to do every second of the day, I always say good people just won't tolerate that. They'll go somewhere where they can express themselves, be themselves, talk, talk or accomplish things they want to accomplish. I just think, again, so many managers get panicked or nervous 
when things aren't going quite right and they grab the wheel, it's the old proverbial student driver, you know, grab the wheel, I'm going to take over. And then the kid just goes, fine, you just drive, right? Whatever. Right. And, yeah. and so I think people just say, forget it. I'll just, I'll let, if you want to do it so bad, you do it. I'll go somewhere else. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, you know, it, what's interesting is, uh, again, if you look at a family setting, you know, for those who, for those of us who have children, you know, when you're when you're when your kids are doing the simplest things, when they're 18 month old, 24 months old, you know, we cheer and we clap and we make a big deal out every little milestone. <laughs> and of course, the older we get, right, the less cheering goes on. And the reality is we probably need it more. Boy, that's good. Yeah. I mean, and, and back to what you're saying. I mean, you know, the, the person did five out of seven things really well. Um and and focus, course, on those two. focus is on those two. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, again, it's, it's the, if you had a kid in sports or whatever, right. It's, you know, I love to, you know, my, my kids played football and soccer. I played some baseball when I was younger. Like, you know, all-star caliber baseball players get out seven out of 10 times. That sounds right. terrible, right? I mean, you're only getting on base three out of 10 times, you know, and that's all-star, right? Like, like we have to reset our expectation as to what, what does success look like in whatever setting. And this idea that you don't, I think our culture swung so far, Bert, in some ways in this kind of participation trophy culture in sports that, you know, you and I kind of probably saw some of our kids go through some of that culture if they weren't careful. And, hey, you showed up, you get a trophy. I don't know that that's quite right either, right? Like, I, I think you want kids to feel like they have to put forth effort. And if they put forth effort and they, they do well, they're rewarded. And if they don't do quite as well, they're not punished. They just don't get as much reward as the kids who work harder and did better. Right. I think, I think we do these kids a disservice if they, if they get told, Hey, I just got to show up and I'll get a pat on the back. You get to the workforce. That's not how it is. Right. Like no points for showing up. Uh, that's not enough. right. Um, you know, and I, I, like you said, I love what you said about how a good parent sees like, I want to give my kid more freedom and, and, and ability to make their own choices and they still need encouragement and occasionally they need correction still, maybe less than when they were two, um, hopefully. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, that's that metaphor of, of sports. Um, I tell you another one Bert, that's in my book um, for the, for the non-sports crowd, uh, the conductor of an orchestra is a great metaphor for leadership, right? Because most conductors formerly played an instrument, right? They, they were a musician of some sort. They might've played the violin or the or a brass or a wind instrument or whatever. Um, but at some point, when you become a conductor, think of the things that change, right? Now, I don't have a musical instrument. I have a little stick. <laughs> I, I wave a stick around, but by waving that stick around, I get this incredible music from a bunch of other musicians. But what's a bad way to be an orchestra conductor? Well, back to our uh, grab the wheel driving analogy, if you're the conductor and the and the first violinist plays a piece or a, a segment wrong, if you rush down there, grab the violin out of their hands, go, let me show you how to do that. That violinist probably doesn't want to play in your orchestra very much, right? Like if you if you always show off that you're the better musician, like if you're a manager and you still want to be the best salesman or the best engineer or the best accountant, pretty soon those people don't want to be on your team because they're supposed to be the ones delivering the music doing the work, right? So conductors, um, they learn they're gonna get motivation, not from being the best musician, but from getting the best music out of the rest of the people, right? And then the last little piece of the metaphor that's so great is, and conductors stand with their back to the audience, right? Ooh. Right? The yeah. audience sees the musicians and they're supposed to appreciate that. And the conductor, he's focused on the musicians. 
Now, he might hear the applause behind him if it goes well. And, of course, at the end, they'll turn around and bow. I get it. I get it. But but that idea that they're focused on getting music from the rest of the musician team, uh, so to speak, and they're not focused on the audience because if they do a great job conducting, the audience will love it, right? Yes. And they'll ultimately get some credit. They'll get to bow at the end. But I love so many parts of that metaphor. Absolutely. I, I love the whole – My the back is uh... – the back is facing the audience, right? And, and the yeah. attention on the team. I love that. All right. And you mentioned, you know, you mentioned culture. And so I want to bring this up because in your book, you talk about these pseudo cultures and what does that mean? Uh, what problems does this cause? Talk about this. Well, I, maybe this is a little more true in the realm of high tech, but I think it's seeped into a lot of corporate America now, right? Probably started in the Silicon Valley. So this, but the pseudo culture thing can be things like, hey, we're going to have ping pong tables and free beer in the fridge and massages at work, maybe even a chef at work, right? Well, that stuff is fine and good, right? I mean, it can be good. There's, turns out there's been some written that maybe it isn't all good, but we'll save that for another day. But, you know, that can be good. But if you treat people like crap during the actual working part of the day and then you think that you're going to make up for it because they can be treated like crap but then go get a free beer in the fridge, you don't get culture, right? Culture is not... The, the trappings or, or the environment, those things can contribute to culture. Culture is how we behave and how we treat people at work. I, you know, we talk a lot about corporate values. I mean, values lived out. Uh, I heard a friend recently say, you know, culture is values consistently lived out. I like that, right? Like if you got a set of business company values that you care about and you consistently live them out, that becomes your culture. What a lot of companies do is they don't think enough about their values or Worse, they have a set of values that I always call the plaque on the wall. And what they do all day doesn't resemble the plaque on the wall at all. <laughs> and when there's dissonance between the, the plaque and the reality, people get that the reality, this is old walk the talk, right? If you tell your kids what to do and you do something different, they don't, they don't care what you say. They watch what you do, right? Well, living it out day to day, living out our values, making that how we do business, how we treat each other, how we promote people, recognize people, how we get business done with customers, how we take care of customers once they sign up with us, whatever. That's culture, right? It's not beer and free tacos and, and massages. Hey, if you do those things to make your team feel a little better, great. But that that doesn't create a culture just to have all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, all right. So, so my next question would be then, what are some of the things or some of the ways that companies can show employees that they value them, that they're appreciated especially companies that don't have the budget to have the chefs and the beer and this and that. So talk about that. Yeah, I guess what it's popcorn and soda for them. I don't know. Um, <laughs> uh, the budget version. No, um, I, you know, it, it, it's a little what we talked about with the appreciation bird. I think that's definitely part of it. Um, I think a lot of it is giving people vision of where the company should go. This whole vision word is another hot one in the world today. Vision and mission. What are, what are you trying to accomplish? You know, not every company's vision is is you know going to be world changingly positive, right? Saving saving Africa, or there's some great, you know, particularly nonprofits who have these wonderful visions to help the poor and help the underprivileged and many great great causes, right? A lot of businesses are like, well, I'm just making stuff, or I'm you know doing things that make people productive or whatever. I mean, I, any of that can have a vision aspect to it, but it's when people feel like hey, what I'm doing matters to some set of people and my colleagues appreciate it. 
and and we're we're helping whatever part of the world we're serving do better, be better, get better. I think that's that's part of what causes people to feel valued is they think, A, we're doing something that matters and, and we're, we're rewarded and recognized when we do. Reward is the, the buzzword there, I guess, Bert, right? Like you, you can get overly fixated on the rewards. Here's free stuff, money, things, you know, tchotchkes is the term, right, sometimes. And that stuff can be great. It, it just, it's not enough to counterbalance the, the real meat being screwed up, right? If, if you treat people badly, if you yell at them at work, if you, you know, step on somebody on your way to trying to get promoted, that's the stuff that will ultimately kill a culture. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. And I can't remember who said it, uh, that, uh, you know, your your strategy cannot outperform your culture. So if you have this culture that is just terrible, back to what you're saying, no matter how good the rewards are and all the little knickknacks that they get, you, you can't outperform it. You, you, you know, your, 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 your company will, will, will dissolve eventually, will employ, implode because you can't sustain it. No, I agree. there's a the quote that's similar to that that I'm familiar with, uh, Bert, is Peter Drucker, who's probably the most brilliant business thinker of the 20th century, he passed away a few years ago. But if you look at a lot of the great business books of today, some of their roots are in Drucker. <laughs> you know, I mean, he just was a very, very wise observer of business and, and, and culture. And the quote that gets attributed to him is culture eats strategy for breakfast. <laughs> kind of your idea that that culture matters more. Um, and, and I like to point, and sadly, I just saw a, a news blurb go flying by about American Airlines laying off 17,000 people. You know, I like to point to the folks at Southwest. I think they embody that at scale as well as anyone in any industry, right? That they've held on to a high performance, very successful business approach, you know, but they're incredibly well known and respected for their culture, right? The way they treat people, the way they treat their customers. And, and it, they're kind of the best large scale example, I think, of these things are not mutually exclusive. In fact, it's a it's it's a competitive advantage, right? I think yeah. the Southwest culture is part of what gives their strategy a real business advantage because their people look at what's happened with COVID. I mean, they their people had to sort of rally and kind of figure out how to get through this. And because they love the company and they love what they're doing, they've sacrificed and made hard trade offs. And I, I'll. Without knowing it today, Bert, I'll guarantee you they're going to come out of COVID better than most airlines, right? Yeah. No doubt in my mind. No doubt. I mean, mind. they're already so far ahead of most airlines because of culture. Now, some of these airlines have started to try to mimic. But what's interesting to me is they they started mimicking the wrong things. Like they started mimicking the peanuts, <laughs> right? Not understanding that the right. peanuts was a branding thing. It wasn't trying to be a cost saver. It was, Hey, we fly you across, you know, whatever we fly you for peanuts and blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, back when Southwest was, uh, you know, first starting off. Right. And, and, right. and that was part of their deal. And so, you know, Southwest is known for having a casual culture, uh, having fun. I mean, you know, there is on YouTube, there's a bunch of different Southwest airlines doing their, pre-flight check in a fun way right. and, and that you know 
there's no other airline out there going viral with their pre-check. Exactly. Well, you probably have heard the, the story. I love this part of that story, Bert. There was apparently in the relatively early days, a customer who was sort of offended by them taking the safety thing too lightly and wrote a letter to Herb Kelleher, the famous you know founding CEO of, of Southwest. Yeah. And you think, okay, most companies, they get a customer complaint letter. They're going to fall over themselves, go yell at somebody internally, all this stuff. You know what Herb Kelleher did it when this guy yeah. complained? He wrote back on the letter, we'll miss you, and sent it back. <laughs> <laughs> like, he fired the customer, right? He didn't fire anybody and his employees. He fired right. the customer. He's like, you're not the kind of customer we want. If you're grumpy about our fun safety checks, go fly on another airline, right? So Absolutely. such a great story about the importance of taking care of your people. Matter of fact, another great Kelleher quote was, you know, how do you think about the stock market? He said, look. I we take care of our people, our people take care of our customers, and that takes care of Wall Street. Kind of like, you know what? If you do that stuff, Wall Street will, you know, you'll have all the good valuation you want, right? His his focus was on treating his people right and encouraging them to treat the customer right. And again, here they are, you know, whatever, tens of thousands, I don't know how many thousand, tens of thousands of employees they have, and they've scaled that sucker. Like it's unbelievable that they've done that so well. So, so anyways, that's what to your point, this is what you and I are both agreeing on. Culture you know, directly impacts how you do work. It's not like, like you said, it isn't the free peanuts that some knucklehead at another airline thought, I get it. Southwest culture is free peanuts. Like, no, that's not their culture. <laughs> you know, their culture is like you have a problem and they'll fall over themselves trying to figure out how to get you where you were supposed to go and smile instead of taking your freaking head off about it. Right. So it, they're just, they're, they're so, so great at that. Anyways. Yeah. I, that's, there's such a great example of culture, ultimately feeding strategy, right? And then helping people win in the marketplace. All right, you mentioned employees. So I wanna ask you this, what actions can employees take uh, that will help improve the work environment? You know, this is a good one, Bert, because sometimes a lot of people, and I remember thinking this way when I was early on in business and I was kind of a, what we call it, individual contributor, first line employee. And a lot of times there's a passivity to sit back and wait and say, well, management, somebody needs to take care of my needs and fix what's not working here, right? And if they don't, I'm gonna leave. And at some level, if it's bad enough, people do, right? They do leave. But but, but in another sense, it's amazing how like there, you can, a, a, great, uh, a great employee with a proper mindset about doing this stuff well, appreciating, thanking people, trying to get people all aligned to work together, a member of the team can often do that as well or better than a manager. And it's contagious. Oh, gosh, bad word in today's context, but good contagious. Right. Like it, it can be something that the other team members go, wow, that's great. You know, they said thank you to me. Maybe I'll say thank you to somebody else. So a lot of times I really encourage kind of first line people, even younger people in an org. Sometimes they're intimidated because they're young and everybody else is older than them. Like, no, just do some of this stuff. Treat people right. Live, live the, you know, I always say when all else fails, see the golden rule, right? Treat people the way you'd like to be treated. Turns out that creates a pretty good environment most of the time because most of us want to be appreciated and thanked and given clarity of what to do. So when you do those things, it can become contagious even at a peer level. You don't have to wait for management to catch on. And look, if a team starts to get that way and they're doing really well and you got some knucklehead manager that's not right, somebody will probably wake up and see that at some point. And if it's that bad and the manager's that terrible, those people will probably just leave and go somewhere else. Again, it's a free yeah. society in our culture. They'll move, they'll move and do something else, right? Absolutely, absolutely. All right, the book is called The Joy, here it is, The Joy of Success at Work 
building organizations that don't suck the life out of people. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think we all want to work for organizations that don't suck, right? And, and really, it's sucking the life out of people that, that causes people to change roles and companies, even careers sometimes, right, Bert? But yeah, I really, I, I really appreciate the chance to talk about some of this stuff. And, and again, I, I, I'm not... Uh, I'm, this is a stupid thing to say on the podcast. I'm not trying to sell a lot of books. I'm trying to help people lead better. Like sure. I give them the book if I could, right? Just like I, I want people to figure out, hey, don't don't create these crappy organizations where people hate coming to work. Create a fun organization. You'll still be successful if you do a lot of this stuff right. It's not an either or. That's why the the and or or is the other play in the title there, right? It's not joy or success. It's joy and you can have fun and do well. I think it's really really quite possible. Yeah, you know what, and and I, I think uh, one of the uh, companies that really serves that example is Zappos. Oh yeah, they had this fun culture, and they did a lot. You know, they were allowed to have a lot of fun, and um, uh, so I think that yeah, I mean, and they were acquired for two billion dollars by Amazon. So to your point, you can have fun and still be successful. So. Yeah. Uh, I think that's that's the way to go. Uh, Mark, we're out of time. I want to pr- uh, put your website up here in case you guys want to reach out to Mark. Grab the book. It's available at markmcclain.me or at Amazon. I'll put a link here in the notes. And uh, Mark, thank you so much for stopping by. Bert, it was a real pleasure. Appreciate the conversation. It was a lot of fun and uh, hopefully helpful to your listeners. And and uh, thanks again for the time. Con- congrats on all your success and, and much, much wishes for more success. Thank you so much, Mark. We'll talk to you guys later. Okay. Bye-bye. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.